This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host Glenn Ford. Coming up, The United States is in the grips of a health crisis and an economic crisis, but is the ruling class in crisis? A black scholar says the oligarchy may be losing its grip. And how do you sell Africa on the world market? You name a perfume after the continent and make the commercial in Rome. But first, Joe Biden has finally come up with a presidential campaign platform tailored to black America. He calls it the Lift Every Voice Plan, but Ajamu Baraka, the 2016 Green Party vice presidential candidate, doesn't see anything to sing about in Biden's plan. One thing that we should be singing about is how insulted we are with this kind of neoliberal paternalism. You know, Glenn, this plan, this so-called plan, is dependent on the assumption that things can go back to so-called normal that all you have to do is provide a few little tweaks to the system, open up some possibilities for some black businesses, and everything will be just fine. Well, we are facing a new reality. We are facing a situation in which objectively the U.S. economy has collapsed or global capitalism has collapsed, and the impact on black workers is profound. His plan speaks to none of these new realities, that basically black people are dying left and right. We are the essential workers who are forced to go into work with no personal protective equipment. We are the ones that uh, don't have any health care. We are the ones that are suffering black workers and Latinx workers. But his plan just provides some symbolic paternalistic crumbs And this is supposed to be seen as something progressive and beneficial. It's complete and utter nonsense. At the center of that plan is $900 million to curb gun violence in the black community. And it focuses on about 40 heavily black cities. That $900 million in grants smells very much like more police and more surveillance. This is the Democratic version of the war on crime, which is the other side of the coin of the Trump administration and their Operation Relentless Pursuit, which is their war on crime. No, we're not going for this again. These war on crimes are wars are waged against our people. And I'm not sure who is whispering in his ear to tell him that, again, this is a central concern that we're having in the midst of a depression, that we're concerned about gun violence in this way. I mean, there are some concerns about gun violence, but is the the gun violence being perpetrated by these occupation forces we refer to as the police? Is the gun violence reflected in the policies of the U.S. administration through its militarism and warmongering? So, again, this is not something that we should be concerned with. You know, we're concerned with uh, trying to survive, not opening up the door 
uh, for the state to uh, to be even more repressive uh, than they have been in the past under the guise of fighting against gun violence. What does that mean? They want to come in and disarm our communities while we see white folks who are to the teeth invading our communities. And oh, no, no, we, we, we have to reject this. We don't have much racial data on the devastation done economically in the black community. Lots of data on the deaths from the epidemic. But figures do show that in some states, a quarter of the workforce has been rendered jobless. And that certainly will have a huge impact on black America. Exactly. These are the consequences of this depression. And we we have to note that the black community never recovered from the collapse of 2008-2009. This idea that there was a economic recovery and, and the lowest job numbers in the history of capitalism was all a mirage. And what it didn't reflect was the millions of people who are no longer participating in the labor market. It didn't reflect those families that where people are now working uh, two jobs in order to, to barely survive. It did not reflect the real realities that our people are facing as oppressed and colonized workers in the U.S. So, you know, these are the conditions that we we refer to as normal, uh, the conditions that some people want to go back to. Well, we can't even go back to those conditions because with 30 million people who are unemployed uh, and with the clear plans on the part of, 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 of capitalists to begin to reduce uh, their labor force in order to squeeze out more productivity, we are looking at a situation where there's no recovery for black America. There's no recovery in general for this capitalist system. So the plans reflected in the, the so-called uh, Biden lift every voice have no relationship to reality, no relationship to the human rights crisis that we are facing at all. Blacks are heavily concentrated in the retail arena, which has been absolutely flattened. But even more insidious, there's another uh, part of that plan, Glenn, where he talk, they talk about uh, being concerned with health disparities. The fact that black people and, and Latino people are, are disproportionately impacted by this coronavirus. And uh, that uh, we are the ones that don't have uh, clinics and hospitals in our communities. But yet, this is the same individual who is adamantly opposed to the expansion of Medicare for All, who in fact said that if a bill like that was actually passed by the Congress, theoretically the representatives of the people, and got to his desk as president, he would veto that. So then the question becomes, you vetoing that bill on behalf of who? Clearly not the people. So this is the kind of, of, of neoliberal status quo that the Biden campaign and this plan uh, represents. So no, again, these are some of the, the items in that plan that have no real relationship to what we need, including things like restoring uh, confidence in voting. If they were concerned with uh, protecting the ability of black people to participate uh, in the electoral process, then Biden and Obama would have put pressure on the Democrats to pass legislation to address 
the gutting of the Voting Rights Act by the Supreme Court. But they didn't do that. In fact, they didn't even address the Voting Rights Act until the Congressional Black Caucus came together a few months ago with a symbolic resolution on the uh, Voting Rights Act. Yeah, this is pure uh, politics of theater. It has no real substance, but it's the kind of politics that the Biden campaign, working with the black misleadership class, have been able to advance in our communities with the full support of that black uh, misleadership class, where basically black people save the Biden campaign, but all we get in return is this symbolic lift every voice plan. It is utter, utterly insulting. Biden is now by himself in the Democratic presidential arena. Bernie Sanders having bowed out. Sanders bowed out at just the moment when the coronavirus epidemic was enveloping the nation and gave up his microphone where he could have agitated for a real health care system for the United States. Clearly, the epidemic has shown that no national health care system exists. Exactly. When they compelled Sanders to basically surrender, it took uh, that critical voice out of the public domain. I mean, just raising the questions around the health care system would have been very important. Just reminding people that the obscene economic inequality in the U.S. existed and that the bosses were the ones who were making the decisions to drive workers back to work uh, would have been a very, very important uh, contribution to to the growing uh, radicalization that's taking place uh, among the working class. But Sanders surrendered and he's been uh, marginalized ever since when the New York Democratic Party decided to uh, cancel their primary. Uh, all he could do was just complain. Uh, and it took Andrew Yang uh, to file a suit to force the Democrat Party in New York to reinstate the, the primary. So Sanders was not prepared to really fight for his supporters. He was not prepared to be a disruptor. And as a consequence, uh, what we have uh, are the milk toast politics of the Democratic Party and the insulting milk toast policies reflected in the Biden plan for black America. This is the politics that the Democratic Party embraces. Uh, this is the politics that they hope to advance uh, if they're able to sneak their way back uh, into the executive branch. This, of course, is a worldwide epidemic, but the United States continues to exert maximum sanctions pressure against Venezuela and Iran and other countries. Isn't this a form of germ warfare? This is a form of biological warfare, no question about that, but is also the fact that these kinds of concerns weren't presented uh, to the black community as concerns that we have, again, is a reflection of how disconnected and the extent to which they misread the traditional stances of the black community. The black community is concerned with the U.S. sanctioned regime and its devastating impact on uh, innocent people around the world. Black people uh, have a growing concern about uh, the expanding uh, U.S.-Africa command 
uh, and the kind of militarism that we see on the African continent. Black people have always been engaged in these issues that not only impact uh, black people in the U.S., but impact black people and oppressed people around the world. So a sophisticated plan that reflected our traditions and our concerns would have been a plan that suggested that a Biden presidency would be concerned about uh, reducing the use of sanctions, uh, that it would be concerned with reducing militarism on the African continent, that it would be committed to respecting a national sovereignty and self-determination for all people. But instead, what we have is a plan that only deals with the domestic politics and says really nothing about the international concerns that we have traditionally had as a people. Yes, the vast bulk of black folks wind up voting for Democrats, but in this late presidential race, only Tulsi Gabbard had anything much to say about foreign policy. Exactly. And even Bernie Sanders, while he had some interesting things to say about domestic politics and the economic inequality, he still was in lockstep. Uh, with the, the national security strategy of the, of the United States, with the bipartisan uh, policies as it related to uh, Venezuela, uh, Nicaragua, Bolivia. You know, this is the contradiction we see with U.S. policies, is that the one can be a so-called progressive in the U.S., but yet still be a pro-imperialist. Uh, and it's not just Bernie Sanders, it's, it's, it's all of the other uh, members of the so-called squad and of course, the Congressional Black Caucus. This is the rightist tendencies that are now so hegemonic uh, in U.S. politics and hegemonic in the black community. So this is the issue that basically in this critical moment in which people are beginning to understand uh, that they are uh, are workers uh, and that uh, their worth as workers is really nothing, that they are beginning to understand that they are not going to allow themselves and their sons and their daughters to to go off and fight for the interests of the 1%. They are beginning to understand the connection between their situation as workers in this country and workers and poor people in other parts of the world that the U.S. has uh, identified as their so-called enemy. So all of these connections, political and ideological connections are being made as a consequence of this crisis. And that's why this plan by the Biden uh, folks uh, is so irrelevant and so disconnected that basically it's not going to move anybody. And it's something that uh, not only is is it going to be rejected, but it's going to be additional cannon fodder for not only the right, uh, but for those of us who are organizing on the left to demonstrate that uh, this party is not serious when it comes to the objective uh, needs and interests of working people and poor people in this country and around the world. And as you've been saying, the top Democrats are allowed to get away with ignoring social justice and peace issues because black misleadership does not press them and does not advocate itself. Exactly. This so-called the conscience of the Congress that the Congressional Black Caucus used to tout is now a fiction. Uh, and that's why they are filling the the pressure, and now are are crying foul because some of the elements that were part of the Bernie Sanders insurgency, uh, the Justice Democrats specifically, are running 
candidates against some of the uh, uh, congressional members, uh, and they are now falling back on their pathetic uh, position that this is a result of, of white racism and all of that. No, it's a result of the fact that you have pursued your own independent agendas, you have violated the trust of the people, you are in the pockets of the bosses, and that now you are going to feel the consequences from, from the people. So, you know, this is democracy. You say you, you believe in democracy, deal with the political challenge. I'm just sad that it took the Justice Democrats to do this as opposed to Black-led formations that can identify and run candidates against some of these people. Do you expect that there might be an exit from the Democratic Party as a result not just of what has gone down in the Democratic primary race, but the economic and medical crisis? I think that that is is going to happen. It's clear that uh, people are becoming more and more uh, radicalized. It's clear to me that the kind of voting participation that Democrats need in order to win in November is not going to happen, especially if they stay committed to uh, to Joe Biden. It's clear that people are looking around for alternatives. Uh, and so there's a real possibility of a, of a better showing among third parties, in particular parties like the Green Party. But you know what, Glenn, we really can't foretell what's going to happen. Things are unfolding so rapidly in this country that is no telling what is going to happen politically because we are in a profound political crisis. The rulers have basically decided that democratic processes are, are really uh, an impediment. We saw that with the Democrats who were doing all kind of weird and funky things with their primaries. Uh, and so there's no telling what's going to happen with the November election. Uh, there's no telling what's going to happen with the anger of the people by, say, September, October, when we still have these astronomical uh, unemployment rates. I mean, this is a situation that is very similar to another very important and critical year, and that's 1917. The only thing that's missing at this point is a strong and viable left alternative to capital. That was Ajamu Baraka, former Green Party vice presidential candidate and national organizer for the Black Alliance for Peace. Baraka is also an editor and columnist for Black Agenda Report. Is the current crisis an economic collapse with the health component or a health crisis that set off an economic meltdown? We put that question to Dr. Anthony Montero, the Philadelphia-based Du Boisian scholar. That's a very interesting question. My preference in looking at social crisis phenomenon is to look at them in their totalities, that is, holistically, and to see the multiple variables and the intersections and interconnections of points of crises. I think when we are addressing the crisis that we are, which is a total crisis of the system. The health crisis or the health emergency brought on by COVID-19 is but an aspect of something larger. Perhaps we could even say it triggered the crisis points that were already in existence. The economy 
was in decline, perhaps leading to a recession, but the COVID-19 virus and the inability of the existing political health and economic system to contain it merely deepened the economic crisis because the whole economy is shut down and is moving towards depression levels of unemployment. And the already existing crisis of political legitimacy, of the legitimacy of the mainstream media and other institutions, foundational institutions of the society, these crises of legitimacy have deepened. So I think at this point, we cannot look at this as one thing or the other. We have to look at it as a total crisis and attempt to see the intersections and interrelatedness of all of the moments or points of crisis. Yes, the mass casualties, especially in the United States, which leads the world, have to be cracked up to a an infrastructure problem, yeah. the lack of a real health care system in the United States. Oh, yeah. And, you know, we were going towards the 2020 election, you know, with the nation divided politically, as bad as it has ever been. But the discourses were almost like, everything is normal, our system is strong, we'll be able to pull our people back together and unite the country with the defeat of Trump. That discourse seems like 100 years ago, well, maybe 50 years ago, in this short time, because there cannot be an assumption that the system can be brought back to what it was before the COVID virus, or even before the 2008 a recession. The system will not be brought back. And the political discussion among the Democrats and then between the Democrats and the Republicans and Trump was a fake discussion. That's what we are now seeing. None of them wanted to address, neither side wanted to address the depth and profundity of the crisis that was waiting to happen a crisis of an existential nature, a crisis that could lead to collapse. And isn't it something that Bernie Sanders, Mr. Health, gave up his bully pulpit microphone at almost the precise moment that the COVID-19 crisis was unfolding? That is, he gave up his ability to agitate on the health issue at that very moment. Yeah, unforgivable. But then it suggests that Bernie Sanders was a was more marketing than it was substance. I don't think, and this kind of proves it to me, I don't know what others would think. I don't think that Bernie ever intended to do a full court press for Medicare for all if he were elected. And the fact that at this moment of crisis, he has retreated from the battlefront or the battlefield of struggle. He has a bully pulpit. He has a huge microphone. He has a following. And he could play a major role 
in clarifying the nature of the situation, in clarifying the nature of the crisis. In fact, if he is really a socialist, he would be presenting either a socialist alternative to the healthcare system and the economic system, or he would be presenting a socialist transition to full-blown socialism. For example, the fact that the crisis is now so interlocked, that is the health crisis and the economic crisis and the political crisis and the social crisis, this is the prime time to argue not just, if you're, pardon me, if he is a socialist, not just for Medicare for all, but for the transformation of the entire system away from the rule of the banks, the financial institutions, the multinational corporations, and their political surrogates. And he's completely silent. Yes, and we can do a comparison of systems under the COVID hammer simply by looking at the death statistics. In China, less than 5,000 dead, although that's where the outbreak first occurred. In the U.S., more than 75,000. It's clear. Or take socialist Cuba or Venezuela or socialist or communist-governed Vietnam. But Bernie, if you remember, made it clear that the socialism that he supports is the Norwegian model. While he spoke about Hugo Chavez as a dead communist dictator, I mean, that kind of white supremacy, calling it socialism, is deeply offensive to me and I'm certain millions of other people. So at the end of the day, we are faced with a real political and ideological problem where people have hijacked the socialist movement, whatever it was, and have turned it into a movement to reform neoliberal capitalism and called it socialism. And the other thing is, it shows, and this is very, I think, it's unavoidable that the white left, be it the democratic socialist left or the far left left, are not capable of uniting the people or even coming up with strategy and tactics to unite the people. And in many ways are not trusted by the people and in particular by black people whose polling numbers show that they as a group, as a people, support socialism more than any other group. So the group that supports socialism the most do not trust the so-called socialists. And I think that goes back to not only what they promise the people, but what the people see of their activity, especially black people, on the question of white supremacy ruling class policy, and that's bipartisan Democrat and Republican policy in the United States for the past 40 years has been austerity, shrinking the public sphere. This epidemic is certainly an indictment of that. There's no question about it, of the neoliberal austerity state, national security state, warfare state policies that go back 40 years. There was no liberal option then or now. 
and it shrunk as we eventually went up to Obama. And uh, all they could give the people were images and fake liberalism and fake socialism, while the suffering just uh, continued to deepen. And it's getting worse now. 33 million people unemployed as of this moment that we're speaking. 16% official unemployment. Probably poverty numbers are off the chain, off the scoreboard. They're so high. And I know in a city like Philadelphia, the most impoverished city among the top 10 in the nation is suffering deeper and deeper poverty, hunger, and homelessness. And it's not being talked about. So here we are. The question is, where do we go from here? As Du Bois put it, whither now and why? What is to be done? This really does look like a social collapse, but it's not a collapse for everybody. The Mm -hmm. richest people in this country in the first three weeks of the crisis netted $285 billion more. Yeah, and the people are watching. I suspect that after we're again allowed out into the streets, the mass uprisings could be like, nothing we've ever seen. They thought the long hot summers of the 1960s in the urban centers of the black community, they thought that that was something. I think what we're we're looking at going forward is massive uprisings, protest, anger, like we've never seen. My point is that politically, And strategically, from the standpoint of the people, we must come forward with not just outpourings of anger, but outpourings of ideas and methods and tactics and organizations and, yes, united fronts that could realign the country politically and, as it matures, possibly take power. I'd like to restate that. United fronts of the people, guided by principled politics, that if successful, could lead to a realignment to the left that could take the government, a systemic collapse of this nature, where the ruling class, and they've made all of this money, can no longer rule where politics comes from the grassroots rather than the elite and their political organs, where the people are maturing politically and able to understand the fundamental contradictions of a system like this, where there is a leadership, a principled leadership coming from the people. If if several of these factors can come together at the same time, we could see the collapse of the government and a popular takeover. And that doesn't mean that we've suddenly gone to socialism, but it would be a popular takeover in the name of people's democracy that could then decide how we move forward, what happens with the economy, whether we nationalize the banks, whether we nationalize the multinational corporations, and what we do about 
labor and unemployment, whether in this kind of situation, there's a mass infrastructure development of the employment of the unemployment in rebuilding schools and hospitals and roads and bridges and whatever else needs to be built, including housing for the people. So that's what I'm looking at. And that's what I think about all the time, Glenn. Once again, the Federal Reserve is creating trillions of dollars out of thin air, which the United States can do. But almost all of it, of course, is going to the big guys, the ones that already have trillions in their own accounts. That's right. We're back to the supply side, trickle down economic policies. And it's going to bite the ruling class in the behind because the big corporations and banks are not going to invest in the people. They're going to buy back their stocks and all kinds of other machinations. But the people will have to decide right now. All bets have to be on the people. And, and by the way, the people can, it's, it's, you can't BS the people at this time. I mean, you can, but if you do it, you do it at your own risk. And that's why your question about Bernie Sanders, he was not committed to the people. And in fact, he walked away from the whole affair, almost angry and bitter at the people. And I would suggest most at black people for not doing what he thought they should do. That kind of halfway leadership, that kind of leadership, which is all about the self and not about the people, and is not committed to sacrifice on behalf of the people, we have to call them out, expose them, and have them pushed to the side to make way for genuine grassroots people leadership uh, from the bottom of society. Now, it's not just what happens in the immediacy of the economic downturn. We know that after all of these recessions, there's a great consolidation of big corporate power, a reorganization in which the big guys become even more powerful and the smaller companies become almost extinct. In this situation, we have whole sectors of the economy being tied down by the Mm -hmm. medical emergency Mm -hmm. and big capital creating alternative methods of the delivery of services. I'm talking about Amazon, the big winner in Mm -hmm. all of this. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. In a certain sense, that is to be expected. That's the pattern of bust and boom, recession and expansion capitalist economics. This looks like something on steroids, that process, those patterns on steroids. But again, I say, more than anything else, this is a political crisis. And it is a crisis where the question of can the ruling class rule and do the people accept their rule? If that is not the case any longer, this crisis can be resolved, but politically. And once the question of who rules and the government of the country is resolved. And if it is resolved on behalf of the people, then we can begin to solve these problems. But without political power, without a different type of configuration of power in the country, we will never be able to solve the crisis and the problem that you just 
put forward. So I'm emphasizing politics, 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 and ideological clarity, the political education of the people, grassroots organization, town hall meetings, labor united, and the labor movement has to get united, but labor has to be united with the black liberation struggle and the black liberation struggle with the other struggles for justice, be it gender, be it uh, Latino, be it Native American, but there has to be unity. And the other thing, the other 800 pound elephant in the canoe is this humongous military budget and this ongoing war against nations like Iran and Venezuela and this talk of revenge against the Chinese and and just on and on. The people have to address these questions and shut these no good politicians up, including the coward Donald Trump. And all of this people's heat has to come from the street. But we have experienced something that is also unprecedented, at least in the past 50 years, of cops having the ability to impose curfews and run people off the street. Well, those are the conditions under which we're going to have to fight. And when a ruling class cannot rule in the old way, one of their options is to turn to police state measures. The people will have to decide this. Now, the good thing is that this is not confined to black people. If it were just a black problem, they could isolate it, intensify repression in the black community, more police killings and killings by ordinary white citizens, and it would go unnoticed in any significant way. But now, this is a general crisis of the people White people are being hurt. White people are committing suicide. White people are ODing on heroin and other drugs. And so therefore, it is a wider problem. And therefore, the police state measures are not, I don't think, able to deal with a crisis that affects white people because, see, Police, as we know, going back to the time of slavery and slave hunting and all that type of thing, police forces have been developed to target black folk in particular. You'd say immigrants, but black folk in particular. It is a slave catching operation in new form. Hence, the question is, will white cops kill white people? Will white cops brutalize white people who are protesting? Some people would say, yeah, look what they did at Kent State 50 years ago. But can they do it on the mass scale that would be required to put down mass uprisings and mass mobilizations defying shutdowns and close downs and laws and measures that say you can't demonstrate? But yeah, all that you say, the centralization of the economy more than before, the expansion of the power of the banks and finance capital, the growing repression and potential repression going forward. All of that is part of the architecture of the class conflict at this moment. This is why infantile leftism or bourgeois social democracy 
cannot lead the people. If you think it's an overnight thing and all I have to do is raise up slogans and such, you need to get out of the way because that doesn't work and the people are not impressed by it. Or if you think you can come with socialism in name and neoliberal capitalism in substance, the people have already begun to see through that. And you know, one measure of it is black folks growing alienation from the Obamas and literally almost forgetting about them as we go deeper into this economic crisis. That was Du Boisian scholar, Dr. Anthony Montero, an organizer with the Philadelphia Saturday Free School. Half a century after most African nations emerged from colonialism, advertising agencies are busy marketing the continent and its people. Dr. Grace Adeniyi Ogunyankin, a professor at Queen's University in Ontario, Canada, says Africa has been repackaged for the global market. She wrote an article that examined, among other things, a commercial hawking a perfume called Scent of Africa. We asked Dr. Adeniyi Ogunyankin why the perfume ad caught her attention. <laughs> I came to study it because my primary research interest is actually on urban renewal, uh, believe it or not. And I've been interested in how African cities are trying to change their image and, and trying to attract investors broadly. And so I had started to uh, watch a lot of shows that focused on cities. And as I was watching these shows, I came across this commercial on YouTube I went down this rabbit hole where I just was seeing all these commercials. And like you mentioned, there's really nothing new per se. But what I was interested in is how there seems to be this narrative that has sort of changed, if you will, in the sense of I noticed in terms of how they're trying to market Africa as being completely different now. Maybe particular ways that some of us are used to understanding Africa and I think that's what I bring up in my article where I mentioned a lot about how there's this focus on familiarity now where, or you can see these Africans or these African places as being very similar to places that we often consider to be cosmopolitan. So Africa is no longer backwards or Africans are no longer backwards. There's just something alluring about Africa now. So that's how I came across this and became interested in looking at these commercials. Well, tell us what's so noteworthy about this particular commercial, Ascent of Africa. <laughs> I think for me, what was noteworthy about it was that it confused me, to be honest with you. So the first time I watched it, I was just like, what in the world is going on in this commercial? And I think what made it really noteworthy for me was that I'm like, why is everybody white in this commercial other than these two uh, main black actor and actresses so and then on top of that i was just like why are you marketing a perfume and why are you calling it scent of africa so i think also because i'm really interested in in commodity racism and i'm interested in in how bodies are used to advertise certain products and that's just what really confused me and made me really interested in what's and started asking questions around what's going on here you see these two African bodies that seem to sort of be out of place, but yet belonging in this what seems to be a cosmopolitan space 
among white people and these white people seem to be very impressed with them. So I just started asking questions like what's going on, what's going on. And it took me two years to finally figure out what I think is going on in that commercial. So I think it was the confusion really that made it noteworthy and specifically the name of the perfume, Sense of Africa. I just thought that was really weird and confusing. And you concluded that what the crafters of this commercial were practicing was Afropolitan imagineering. What's that? Yes. Uh, <laughs> it's a term that I sort of uh, put together. So Afropo- the term Afropolitan or Afropolitanism has existed for I guess one could argue since about 2005 when Taya Selassie came up with it. And at that time, when Taya Selassie came up with it, she was really focused on looking at these transnational Africans that are so different from these particular images of Africans that we have as being poor and all these things. So she was really interested in talking about people like herself, who's transnational, who's mobile, who's global, and they're they're different. They speak in particular ways. They you can still recognize them as being African in terms of maybe how they dress or maybe using certain um, terms or even speaking African languages, but they're different because they're just more cosmopolitan, they're more global in terms of what they know and where they've been. So I worked with this term of how people have come to understand Afropolitan. And then I added Imagineering. So this comes more from my urban background, which focuses on urban Imagineering. So urban Imagineering projects are projects that focus on trying to brand the urban, trying to show the urban as this place where you want to come to live play and work and all these things, just trying to like make the urban look really attractive. So I put these two terms together to think through how I can start to understand these commercials that I've been looking at and how I can start to understand some of these urban projects on the continent as being Afropolitan Imagineering projects. So in this particular case, Afropolitan Imagineering now becomes this project that tries to showcase Africa or Africans as being different. So trying to produce these new images about Africans that challenge these old notions or orientalist notions of Africa as being different, as being other. So Afropolitan Imagineering then is trying to tell the world that Africa is now different, that Africans are cosmopolitan, that Africa and Africans are people that are global. You can see them as being transnational. You can see them as engaging in consumption in the sense of luxury consumption. Because if we often, if we think about how Africa or Africans have been portrayed in, let's say, World Vision commercials, for example, they're always looked as being poor and people are trying to raise money for Africans. And this particular Afropolitan Imaginarians say, no, 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 there's something different now that's going on. And at the same time, I also talk about Afropolitan Imaginarians actually being, we can think of it as being pan-African in the sense that it's not just about the individual per se, it's also about trying to show that Africa can be connected. And, and if Africans work together, you can challenge these orientalist ways of understanding Africa. And you can also show that Africa has arrived um, on the global stage, particularly when we think of luxury consumption, if you will. 
Well, yes. And as you point out, these commercials try to evoke a certain Afrocentrism and a pan-African identity and to proclaim that Africa has arrived. But Mm -hmm. the commercial actually has them arrive in Paris, the capital of the colonizer, and in the company of all these Parisians. Isn't it really a Eurocentric commercial? So actually, I think this commercial takes place in Rome and not Paris. So yes, I mean, I I agree with you because at first glance, I was just like, I don't understand what's going on. Why is this commercial taking place in Europe of all places? So, I mean, I battled with myself in general and also as I was writing the article. And I think the conclusion that I came to is like, okay, it makes sense in a way that it's taking place in Europe, because in this way, it's sort of like you were so used to seeing African bodies as being in Africa. So it sort of messes with someone's mind and like it's sort of, if you will, relocating the African body and it could just be, it could be anywhere. So the, in that commercial, there's no clear sense of where this place is. You just know that there's a lot of white people there. You don't really know if this is in Rome or if this is in Paris or London. The only reason why I knew it was in Rome was because I dug through the website and I found several videos that were showing the shooting of the commercial. And that's when they said it was in Rome. So in this sense, it sort of disrupts this this notion that the African body has to belong in a certain place, if you will. But at, but at the same time, it also tries to show you, I, I think, at least the way I'm understanding the commercial, that the African body can be anywhere. And if it's something that can be familiar to people in the sense that you're seeing this particular upscale space and you're like, and you're like, wow, African bodies can be in upscale spaces. So in that sense, I think that's what maybe the commercial is trying to do, trying to show that, well, African bodies are not always in slums or in these, they can also challenge your assumptions of where African bodies belong. They're not always in these backward places that are in need of development. So I think in that sense, maybe that's why they filmed the commercial there. And for me, in terms of my critical analysis of the choice of location, I think Rome is important because we think of all the philosophers and all these ways in which Rome has been talked about as being this center of a lot of things. And then these tellings of European places, African places are often excluded. So to me, I'm like, well, this is sort of speaking back to the exclusion of African bodies, the ways in which African bodies and African places have sort of been, you know, left out of geography or or have been rendered ungeographic. So in that sense, I felt like this is maybe this is a way of speaking back to these exclusions and also showing that African bodies should not always be read as being in places that are seen as being backwards or dirty places are often commonsensical ways of portraying African places in the Western world. Yes, you say that these commercials may have some subversive elements, and you cite a person who certainly was subversive of colonialism and capitalism, Franz Fanon, the author Mm. of Wretched of the Earth and Black Skin, White Masks. What do you think Fanon would think about these commercials, Scent of Africa and the others? (laughs) Well, I think Fanon will be a little unimpressed, if you will. Because, I mean, the, a line that always strikes me from Fanon is like, why do you have to, like, reproduce 
this mirror, like, why do you have to send back a mirror image to Europe, right? And I think in that said, some of these commercial, and I think that's sort of what I argue in the article, why are we sending back this mirror image? And I think I've come to realize that maybe that's too simplistic of an analysis or a conclusion, because that was really what I initially concluded when the first 10, 20 times that I kept on looking at the commercial, I was just like, why? Why? This is like a bad counter narrative, et cetera, et cetera. So I do think Fanon would not be happy with it. But I also think that it also offers us possibilities for how sending back mirror images are not necessarily simplistic sending back mirror images. It could do something more. But nevertheless, in my article, I still critique this doing something more, this subversive potential as not being enough, that we have to imagine otherwise, look outside um, the commonsensical familiarities that we're used to and try to think of alternatives. Now, some of these commercials are consumer commercials and others are designed to attract investors to Africa, whether they be Europeans, Americans, or Chinese. But the consumer-oriented commercials are directed at what you call Afropolitans. Who are Mm -hmm. they? Might you be one? (laughs) I think there's an ongoing debate about who an Afropolitan is. So a couple of scholars I've sort of limited the like the Afropolitan to being a transnational African, whether they're located in the diaspora or located on the continent. The key thing is that they're mobile, they go from place to place, and they're also relatively well off. So they could either be middle class or upper middle class. They're educated. They are global in the sense that they know the names of fancy drinks that say they're in a bar. They could be drinking martini, but at the same time, the Afropolitan could also maybe mix palm wine, which is a local alcohol in the African context, with maybe something that you're more used to in the Western context of what might be considered a regular drink. So in that sense, some scholars have highlighted this is the Afropolitan, whereas other scholars have completely critiqued this notion of this Afropolitan as saying, well, why are you celebrating consumption? What about other Africans? Why are you trying to create this binaries of new people being the new Africans and you also have these old Africans? Why are you trying to engage in these same capitalist ways of consumption that continue to produce these inequalities? And I think where I've come to center myself in this debate is that I think the Afropolitan is not necessarily someone that's rich and transnationally mobile. If one wants to think of the Afropolitan, you could also be located in a village somewhere in an African country, but you still know what's going on. So you're in a village, but you're dancing to like, I don't know, a Beyonce song because you're aware of the global, right? And there's also ways that you can stylize yourself that might not necessarily, you're not spending a lot of money on clothes and consumption, but you still feel like you're part of the global and local at the same time. So you don't have to be transnationally mobile. You can be part of the world without having to travel somewhere else. You don't have to be in a big city. You don't have to be rich to be Afropolitan. So that's sort of where I enter that debate. Um, But I'm also very critical of of Afropolitan because I don't think it's enough for us to produce the counter narrative because, again, um, I think a lot of it is still about consumption, if you will. 
So to answer your question, do I consider myself an Afropolitan? Um, <laughs> it depends on the day. I mean, to a certain extent, I kind of like the term Afropolitan sometimes because, I don't know, it has a nice ring to it, if you, especially when it first came out in 2005. But, um, but I, I'm still very critical of it because the way Afropolitan is often understood is it's, it's, it's very classed. So I'm critical of this, especially in terms of how, how, how this term Afropolitan is used to make this distinction that there's the African and then there's the Afropolitan. So I'm very wary of that. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.